Well, who here doesn't, uh, doesn't like rules? I know for me, uh, I'm not really one who's keen on rules, never really have been, I've always been. And, and I had this, you know, strange personality quirk called overconfidence. Um, and and it, always, it always mixed together to make me what I call, you know, a trailblazer. Someone who's an adventurer. I'm going on the paths that nobody else wants to go. And since I'm so overconfident, I think I can do it well. But it doesn't always end very well. Quite frankly, it doesn't end very well often in my history when I become overconfident and blow caution to the wind, um, or throw caution to the wind. But about five years ago, I was a youth intern. I just graduated college. I thought I knew everything there is to know about everything. And um, I was working with some teenagers, and I was going down to New Mexico uh, to, to help put on a vacation Bible school at a Navajo reservation in New Mexico. And kind of as a treat for the teenagers, after we, we were serving alongside of those in the Navajo reservation, we, uh, we went to the Grand Canyon as kind of a treat, you know, something to, to lure the, some, of, some of our teenage brothers and sisters uh, to see the excitement and some of this stuff so they can go and learn. Well, as, um, as we were there, you can imagine, if you've never been, it's a beautiful place, right? I mean, pictures don't even do justice to it. It's, it's painted, you've got these mixtures of colors, and even when you get there, it actually looks like this. And you think, you know, is this a, did somebody just hang a picture? It doesn't even look real. Well, not only is this place beautiful, but it's also a dangerous place. If you go in some of the lodges that are right along the edge of the canyon, they actually have a book called Over the Edge, Death and the Grand Canyon. And in it, they talk about all the stupid stuff people do to get themselves killed at the Grand Canyon. Well, I read a couple of those stories when I was there with the, teenage, uh, the teenagers, and I still wanted to explore I was foolish, and, and I wanted to go on those forbidden paths and be that pioneer. So in recklessness, I led a crew of other young guys who thought I was really cool, which was really poor on their part at this part, to pass the signs that say, do not go off the trail. And so we passed them, and we began to jump and crawl and hike and sprint along these steep inclines in the desert along the Grand Canyon. And as we were doing this, I jumped on a pile of what I thought were stationary rocks, but they weren't stationary, and so I began sliding down this deep incline. And you know how things seem to almost slow down when everything seems like it's going to turn out very catastrophic? Well, that's what happens. I look about 10 feet in front of me, and I know that the rocks disappear. Um, and there's nothing around me to grab. And so I begin sliding, and then it's 6 feet, and then it's 3 feet, and then over the cliff I go. <laughs> That was my thought exactly. Um, well, luckily, it was only about a 10-foot drop. Somehow, and if you're moving at that speed, you, you wonder how this happens, but I still landed on my feet and was able to jump forward so that the rocks didn't fall on me that were still falling, that were sliding alongside of me. And as I look up, this is what I see, which was really encouraging. <laughs> and I thought to myself, this was not a very wise idea. And then I hear one of the teenage boys up at the top go, Gabe! <laughs> Crackling, calling out, seeing if I'm okay. And what I see is death before me. If, I would have, if the cliff would have been a little bit higher, or if I would have fallen just ever so slightly differently, I might not be sitting here before you. And needless to say, we jumped back on the path that was lined out alongside of the Grand Canyon, and I just told the guys, you know, this was all according to plan. I just wanted to show you how important rules are and how important it is to follow them. So next time there's rules on a missions trip, you know, 
make sure you follow them. Well, I think uh, we all have issues with rules, whether we want to admit it or not, except, of course, the own, our own rules that we've made. You know, we've got good logical reasons why we've made our rules. And even the most, liber- you know, the most vigi- vigilant libertarian among us would still have some sort of rules for community. I mean, all these rules, they govern the way we interact with others, right? We have rules for our kids. We have rules for our homeowners association. We have rules for our friendships. We have rules for our communities and so on. And these rules, they communicate something deep about us. They communicate what we value. They communicate how we think community should function. They communicate how we understand humanity, our humanity and what we think is best, quite frankly. Rules tell a lot about us. And they can, really de- uh, they, can re- they can reveal our deepest desires. Well, we make or align these rules um, with what we think is best in community. And those rules, they define what we think is either okay or terrible. But the question you have to ask yourself in a world of competing values and competing rules as to whose rules are best. Who defines what is actually good? And who defines... And will actually bring about the rules that you're going to trust. I mean, this is critical because if you have the wrong rules or guidelines, the wrong commands, you too may find yourself sliding off a cliff, unable to stop, but you might not be able to walk away from that fall. Rules guide us. They direct us in a particular path, in a certain trajectory, and they protect us. And this morning... We enter into the longest sermon that we can find in Scripture, which we're not going to preach the whole thing today. Uh, it's the book of Deuteronomy. And, uh, and in this sermon, we see that God's law is good. We saw last week that Israel was on the cusp of the promised land. God had sent, uh, asked them to send in some spies to go and check out the land. And they came back and they brought a bad report. They saw that it was beautiful, But they did not trust God's strength to bring them into his promised land. And so God actually banishes them into the wilderness for 40 years so that every adult that is among them dies, save Caleb and Joshua. And this this young generation is now, 40 years later, back on the cusp of the promised land. So if we look at their journey, you can see this is where they were at. They were at Kadesh Barnea. And they began to journey through the wilderness, avoiding now the promised land and going through a journey of faith and judgment because of their disregard for God's laws. Ever moving, ever wandering, and they finally arrive up there where that big red arrow is on the plains of Moab. You see, up to this point, they've heard a lot from God. They've heard his commands. They've heard covenants. They've heard about the conditions and relationship. They've learned about the ins and out of sacrifice. Now they're on the River Jordan, and Moses wants to leave these people with history. And not just history they leave behind them, but remind them that this history is also their story. This is something that happened to them and to not only their parents, but has become their own. To remember that this is their story. It's cross-generational. It's cross-cultural. So picture this. All of Israel is gathered around Moses for his last words from the Lord. He's about to preach. Moses gets his preaching act on. And once he completes his sermon, he's going to leave his pulpit in the plains, climb a mountain, and die. <laughs> I mean, that's, 
That's pretty a phenomenal situation. And that should cause us to pause and carry great severity to the words that Moses is about to proclaim that God has given him. So we, like Israel, we sit on the edge of our seats and we wait to hear from Moses. And this is what he says in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, which precede this repeating of the Ten Commandments. He says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountains, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up to the mountain. He's in in essence saying, don't just say this is what happened to your parents. This is what's happened to you as a community. This is also your story today. Make these your own. And one of those key moments in history that we're narrowing in on today is when God dictated the Ten Commandments. This is a very unique time in the Old Testament where actually God speaks out to all of Israel the whole Ten Commandments. And his good law was revered. It was so revered that it's etched in stone. It's stored and it's guarded within what was called the Ark of the Covenant. The very, and then that was placed in the most holy place in the tabernacle, this traveling temple, the Holy of Holies. I mean, these, the, the Ten Commandments were not taken lightly. They were seen as a great uh, episode of when God spoke directly to his people and they freaked out. And they asked Moses to be a good mediator, s- proclaiming God's word to them. But what's so interesting, before we dive into these a little bit deeper, is, is that God does not change what he actually and originally gave them. Because this is, this is a different generation, as we said. Now stepping into different circumstances, he still gives the same laws. And one theologian, he puts it this way, he says, God does not issue revised versions of his will about idolatry, murder, theft, and coveting. To be sure, there is adaptation in some particulars to new circumstances, like there are amendments to to the Constitution. But the revelatory truths of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, Deca, Ten, are firmly set for the next generation and generations thereafter. To erase the prohibition against covenanting or disrespect to one's parents is no more possible than to strike the phrase, all men are created equal from the Declaration of Independence. When we enter this morning's text, we will answer these three questions concerning these unchanging rules that he's given us here. Why does God give us rules? What are those rules? And how do we respond? So, Why does God give us rules? What are those rules? And how do we respond? So first we're going to ask, why does God give us rules, right? That's the first question. In society, we try to make rules for all types of reasons, whether it's laws to protect the weak, uh, prevent the destruction of the good, or place limits on dangerous behavior. We know that. That's kind of common sense. That's what we shoot for as a society. Life without laws or without rules leads to anarchy. And a society without laws or rules is encased in fear because you open yourself to the whims of everyone's forever-changing desires. There is no accountability within the norms of community. There's no consequences when you break those laws, those rules, and those norms. So everyone has free reign to treat the other as they so desire. As it says in the book of Judges, 
doing everything that is right in their own eyes. And as there are many eyes in here, there are many different viewpoints we could have on how we treat one another, but by God's revealed word. In America, we vote on legislators, right, who, who further our values, make laws that we hope to agree with to create the kind of society the majority thinks is best. That's how we try to pursue this in our own country, right? Well, not so with God. God gives us his rules. It's not something we vote on. It's something he presents. There's a clear distinction, and Scripture in no way, shape, or form ever presents God's rule over the world as a democratic republic, but rather as a theocracy, one, the God who rules over all of his creation. He is the creator king who governs the world according to his design, his values, and his goodness. So when we come to the Ten Commandments, we can see that these aren't just religious activities. You know, these aren't something we just do because God's trying to force his power down upon us. But we're actually giving a window into the heart of the king, the king of the universe. Because remember we talked about how rules reveal our values. They reveal what we desire and they reveal what we think is good. So the first reason why God gives us his rules is actually, whoops, is to teach us who he is. If you were to read through the various um, stories of Scripture, every page is telling us about who he is. Every page is drawing us in to who our God is. It's not just learning about facts, but it's learning about the person, our Lord and our Savior, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who's revealed himself and continually is seeking to redeem broken humanity. His character is the main thing. We, we talk about this as we're going through the stories. God is the main character of Scripture, right? As we're looking at all these stories, as we're journeying together, well, in the Ten Commandments, his character is the main thing. And every one of his rules, they flow out of who he is and what he values and how he's revealed himself in history. So look at verse 6, Deuteronomy 5, 6. Before any commandment is given, what does he say? He reveals once again who he is. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. We see how God operates and that he first rescues from bondage and fear and then calls those he has redeemed to free and flourishing lives. It's out of God's desires that he calls us to right worship, to justice, to healthy families, to mutual respect. And so in response, we actually get to do what he has already done and is doing and bask in his goodness. What God has called his people to is what he's revealed as good. Good. We see God's values here. And so, not only does he reveal who he is, but the second reason why God gives us his rules is so that we, he can teach us how to live. He can teach us how to live. Now, that assumes something, though. That assumes that we don't know what is good. And that assumes that we need to be taught. Yes, we can discover that which is good, but it comes through God's revealing. For those of you who are newer to the Christian faith, um, as you look at the history of the world through the Bible's lens, we see that at the very dawn of creation, God made the first man and woman to flourish in this gorgeous garden, to finally be at harmony and peace with him and the rest of creation. But there was one rule, one rule. And instead of obeying God's one rule, trusting in his wisdom, What do they do? They break the one rule of the garden and enter in destruction 
pain, and death for the rest of creation and humanity thereafter. Ever since that fatal decision, the rest of humanity has carried this scar on who we are. We're no longer straight and narrow, but we're bent. We're bent. We no longer go down God's ways, as he's called us to, and walk alongside him, but we bend away from his good ways and his good path. We therefore don't naturally recognize what is good in the world. We need someone to come and straighten us out because we are so bent and out of line. And in these ten rules, they give us the window into life as it was designed to be. God's always seeking to go back to the intimacy with his creation that he had designed it all the way at the beginning in the garden. These demands, they link up with our design as, as, as God has made us. And being bent, we chafe against that state, straight and narrow, and they challenge some of our viewpoints. And this is where some of us get hung up, not just on the Ten Commandments, but the other laws and rules and guidelines that God has in his word. And if you ever, and I want to talk about this for a second, if you ever truly want to have a personal relationship with God, if you ever actually want to know him as a person and have a walking, talking relationship with him, you have to let him challenge you. If you don't ever let him challenge you, then you will not have a relationship. I mean, think about this. For example, a husband and a wife, if they never have conflict with one another, ever, you have two different people in a marriage, you know, that have two different viewpoints on a lot of different things, if they never have conflict, can we honestly say they have a meaningful relationship? There's levels of transparency that's never happened because there's never been an honesty about the difference of opinion, the difference of personalities coming together with honest speech. I don't know if you've seen the movie. I mean, actually, there was two of them. There was a remake. The Stepford Wives. Um, but the, the, the husbands in Stepford, Connecticut... Um, they, they got tired of their wives, apparently, and so they made them into robots. Robots that were always, uh, always compliant to the will of their husbands. And yeah, sure, the Stepford wives, were, they were beauties, and they were also compliant, but their marriage was never personal. It was mechanical, and therefore it was empty, and it breaks down. If you choose to disregard everything in God's Word that just chafes against your sensibilities... And, that, and if it doesn't line up with how you perceive the good life and you pick and choose what you want to hear from God, then you're going to have anything but a personal relationship with a personal God. If you always win the argument with God, if you're always walking away when you dislike what he has to say, how can God ever meaningfully contradict you the way any good friendship does? The way any good and deep relationship does when they have to say the hard things even though they, you know, you, they know you don't want to hear it at that point. Because they love you that much. But if you close yourself off, God won't contradict you. He will leave you to your own devices. And it's only when we hear those things that from God that, that cause us to struggle, that cause us even outrage at times because they chafe against our sensibilities, then you will see not a mere God of your own making, not a Stepford God, but the real personal God who longs for your good. The real God that wants to challenge you and actually guide you from your bentness to his straight and narrow way of flourishing. So, as you read these commands this week, we're going to walk through them a little bit. I mean, in our time together, you could spend months and even years just walking through the Ten Commandments. So we're going to do a little more thousand-foot level of the Ten Commandments. But as you read them on your own through your, uh, your open-here reading schedule, I want you to ask a couple questions, okay, in light of what we just said about why God gives us these rules. 
First, ask, what do these commands teach me about who God is? What do these commands teach me about who God is? Secondly, what are these commands teaching me about how to live? And then thirdly, where do they chafe against my own personal perspectives? Where do they chafe? Because that's usually a good sign of where God is going to be doing his most work. So we see that God gives us his rules, yes, to teach us about himself and how to live. But what are those rules? What are those rules? And a few things that can be said about these ten rules that are given in this passage, just overarching, is that eight out of ten of them are negative commands, which, you know, they're prohibitive. They say, don't do this, which makes us think, you know, of when our parents, when we were younger, would say stuff along those lines. Don't do that. And it just feels like it's, it's pushing in on us. But that's, that's the language we have here, these prohibitive languages, eight out of the ten of them. And every time they say, no, don't do this, they say it in the strongest form possible in Hebrew. The strongest form. There is no wiggle room here in these eight negative statements. The other two are positives. You should do this. You should do this. Also, you'll notice they're all singular. Even though they're given to a community, they're singular, highlighting personal responsibility. This is something each person is accountable for as we look at these Ten Commandments. And then finally, they're always speaking deeper than mere action. Okay? Um, we, We can read these and we can just say this is external action, but even in the Old Testament law, it was always speaking of intentions, motives, and thoughts as we think about the Ten Commandments. So, when navigating these ten rules, they can also be organized in two overarching themes. Okay? Our love for God, this vertical relationship, and our love for one another, horizontal, horizontal relationship. And this is what Jesus even says when he's asked by uh, some questioners, um, what is the most important and the greatest rule that God has given his people? And he says in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what he's doing there is he's picking up the two summary points of these ten rules. And he's saying, look, if you can love God and you can love your neighbor, you'll fulfill the ten. And you'll fulfill even further than that as we talk about following God's ways in your life. So, the first four commands, they guide us on how to love God. To love God, these first four. They give the eager listener the insight into God's love language. And in the first command, we see God's desire for exclusivity. He he won't share himself with anyone else. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. I mean, when God's people go looking for deliverance, when they go looking for guidance and success, who will they trust? God's rule says it must be him alone. The one who's rescued them from Egyptian slavery out of his love and who has followed through on his promises of old, isn't he the one who is the best to receive their trust and their devotion? The gods Yahweh defeated in Egypt aren't the ones, nor are the ones, the gods that he's going to defeat in Canaan, the gods that are to give their devotion and their heartfelt (coughs) affection and trust to. Otherwise, they'll end up just like they are, destroyed, destructive, and the end path is death. So if you're going to have to give your devotion to one, why not make it the most powerful, the most gracious one? God demands exclusivity, him alone. Not only this, but as we move on, God will not be manipulated. I mean, this is really what the second commandment's picking up here. 
The second rule states you shall not make an idol, and it gives these different listings, right, of things in the sky or things on the earth or things under the water. And people have done this throughout generations and throughout centuries and millennia. Well, they'll see something that is of great power, and they'll make an idol so that they can control that power, much like modern-day voodoo. You make an, a, a structure, and then you coerce the power into that structure so that you can then manipulate it to accomplish your purposes and your goals. It's completely backwards. Instead of submitting yourself to God and saying, I will follow your purposes, your goals, you try to take God, put him in a controllable way, and manipulate him for your own purposes and your own gain. Well, God says, no way. That's not how you deal with me. That's not how you relate to the one true God of the universe. It doesn't work. And people, they don't just try to use statues and idols to manipulate God. They also use their words, which is the important link with the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Another way of understanding this vainness is an emptiness or worthlessness. Sometimes we use God's name or his reputation um, to get what we want rather than support what God wants, right? It's, it happens quite commonly. Um, when we preach a false gospel or a false theology and then we stamp his name on it and say this is what he affirms, then we've taken his name through the dregs and we've said that he, and we've taken his name in vain. Another avenue to do this is, is when we use God's name in a trivial manner. We stub our toe and then we say, oh my God. We've taken his character, who he is as the Lord and the universe of our whole world, or the Lord of our universe, and we've just made it a mere swear word, something that we breathe out when we're in pain, rather than reproaching him, approaching him in dignity and in honor. And then finally, this is something that I think we all wrestle through, if not the other two. If we still go through the motions every Sunday, and we come and we sing songs and we proclaim confessions, and yet we just use his name to assuage our guilt, rather than allowing a personal relationship with him that changes the next six days of our week. And we at that time have also taken his name in vain. We've said it in empty fashion, knowing it has no authority over our lives. You see, after setting up these healthy rules to help stop from even attempting to try to manipulate God either through statues or through words, he calls his people instead to what in the fourth commandment? To rest on him. And to rest with him. And quite frankly, this is, this is a difficult one for me, uh, and a different, difficult one, I think, for our culture in general, especially for those of you who are young um, professionals or in college or in master's level education. Um, we can become so focused and so determined that we don't take those times to rest and to find great sustenance in who God is. The fourth rule is a calling to set apart one day out of the week, one day out of seven, to actually rest and remember. Those go together. It's not just doing leisure activities, but it's also involving this element of remembrance. The other six days we work, and that is good. It's good to work uh, as we fight against our slothfulness that dwells within us. But on one day out of the seven, you will stop and you will rest. Everyone and everything ceases its normal flow of activity throughout the community on this one day to enjoy leisure and reflect upon what God has done for them. You see, they're no longer slaves that they have to sustain their masters or themselves, but rather God has freed them forever, working to appease 
freed them from forever working to appease or forever working to please those around them. And instead, they find their identity in what God has done, not in what they have done. They find their identity in God's salvation rather than trying to save themselves from the whip of the slave master. They're no longer owned by Egypt, but they're God's people. He saved them. And even as we look at, if you look deeply at this, this fourth command, it's so interesting that even the animals have to rest, right? You can sit, if you're a farmer, if you're working in agriculture or you're working uh, with dairy cows or what have you, you can tell when your animals are getting tired. You can tell when they're getting worn out if you don't give them a rest from the work as well. But in our technological age, we try to keep up with machines that never need a time to break. They never need to be shut off. Our emails are always going. And so our anxiety and our work just continues to incessantly build up to the point that we even have trouble sleeping because we can't turn it off. And I think God understands quite deeply. Well, I know God understands quite deeply who we are and our need to be able to turn that off, shut off the email. And that's one of the hardest things for me. My day of just rest and unplugging is Friday. And Allie has really helped try to keep me accountable to that because it's hard. Because there's always more to be done. There's always more that you need to be God over. Which is true, right? We, we have a hard time letting go because we want to be the ruler. We think if we just put it down for one day, the whole world's going to crumble because we haven't kept it up. And there are seasons when life is a little busier and when it's a little slower. But taking that one day to just rest is healthy. It's, it's part of our design. Otherwise, we live our lives slaves to our work rather than the freedom and the joy of what it means to flourish as, life, as God has called us to. So, instead of manipulating God, he calls his people to exclusively rest in him alone and remember they are his alone in what he has done. You see, it's not until we understand this one true God that we will ever be able to enter into the second half of not only loving God, but loving our neighbors genuinely. Genuinely. Because we can put on a good act. We can do a lot of good things, but they do, we do it out of uh, guilt We do it because we want to look good and we love our reputation or we want to be accepted by others rather than the overflow of who God is and what he's done for us. And when we look to the next six rules, you can see how they come even out of the understanding of who God is. They're not just about our relationship with one another, but they flow out of God's character. So let's look at them very quickly. Because we're to honor and respect the creator of the universe, then we are to honor those who have become our co-creators. Honor your father and mother. Because God is the ultimate giver of life, then we are, to, we are not to take life that he has given. You shall not murder. When God is passionate about exclusivity and faithfulness in our relationship to him, why are we shocked when he calls us to exclusivity in our, our marriages and to keep our hands off of other people's spouses? You shall not commit adultery. If God can create the universe and control the most powerful nation in the world at the time, Egypt... Can he also not provide for your needs? You shall not steal. If God is a God who embodies truth and knows the truth is best, such that he proclaims it even when it hurts, even when it's painful, even when it challenges his people, he will, not, will he not also call his people to honesty and integrity even when it hurts? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And if God is one who is always content in who he is and is always overflowing with joy seeking how to give, towards his broken creation and towards the other, not looking at others and what he can get out of them, will he not also call his people not 
to covet, always looking at people and what you can get from them, and lusting for their items that they own that you wish you had. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. These are God's ten main rules, and he gave them to his people as a gift. A gift that we might know him, that we might relate with him, and flourish together as a community. And when you received a a gift of this magnitude, you almost wonder if thank you is not enough. You know, no matter how well the Hallmark card is written, you know, you feel like there's something more. So we ask ourselves, how do we respond? How do we respond to this gift? To understand how God has designed the universe and how he is working in the universe and who he is. Well, first you learn to love his rules. Learn to love his rules for yourself. And I, I don't mean be legalistic. You know, we, we, I think we swung so far in the opposite pendulum, or the opposite end of the pendulum, that instead of, you know, being so zealous for his rules, we just kind of hate rules altogether, and we just throw everything up, and all is good. But that's not the case. If we truly love one another, that's not the way Scripture portrays human flourishing. Rather, seeing the pure beauty and the wisdom of God that is contained within their meaning. I mean, look at the psalmist in his words of Psalm 19. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. The psalmist loves the rules of the Lord because he understands how they're good for humanity and good for him. So when we come to understand them more deeply, we come to see how they're good for us. I mean, these laws, they're the moral topography of our world, if you could look at it that way. And God has given us a map towards flourishing and protection. We cannot always see what they're keeping us from. Um, but we know who has given them to us, and we know that he's good. So imagine if we were to ignore their guidance. It's, it's like a captain of a ship. And he knows on the map that there are these reefs that can tear apart the bow of his ship. But instead, in his own desire to trail or to blaze a new trail, he goes against the reefs, and they slice his bow to bits. And he sinks in the depths of the ocean. This is what it's like when we ignore God's rules. We to- totally throw caution to the wind And we invite destruction on our lives. And those of you um, who have felt or been a part of families or have friends that have wrestled through these, you've seen the destruction firsthand and felt it. So love his rules. And here's the thing. The ultimate expression of loving his rules is actually to obey them. To obey his rules. Dig deeper in understanding their depths and how they are speaking into your life. And that means more than just reading them, but doing them. We learn by doing, and we learn sometimes by not doing and by watching, yes. Also, you can incorporate the Ten Commandments in your time of reflection and confession. That's a healthy discipline to be doing on a regular basis as you understand, yes, these commands are not mere action, but thought, intent, and motive as well. And then they will train our community by the work of the Holy Spirit into a counter-community of joy, of joy. Now, I I know I've told you this once or twice before, that I'm a bit of a science fiction nerd. And I've been reading through C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. Jake is smiling pretty big up here. Um, And I just finished Paralandra, so it's the second book in this trilogy last week. 
And it's, it's a magnificent story, fictional story, of this guy named Ransom. And he goes to this, the, the, the planet is called Paralandra. That's the name of the book. And he goes to this planet, and it's very synonymous with Eden, before the fall of the world. And so he goes in there into this perfect world, and he's on these floating islands, and the fruit, every bite is better than the last, but he's not so over, you know, he's not so covetous that, you know, he's constantly longing for more, but he's amazingly satisfied, even though he knows every bite is better than the last. I mean, this is the picture we're painted of almost an Eden-esque world. And he meets the lady of the world, which is a lot like our um, Eve, and she's flawless, you know, she's flawless, and she's without sin, and she's obeying the great God, which C.S. Lewis gives him the name Maladil. So if you're following still, I'm sorry for the characters here. Maladil, the lady, Paralandra. And he visits this land, and he's wondering why he's there. But another man comes to the world. He's the tempter. It's an old colleague of his, but he's indwelled by something other than his old colleague. His name is the unman, is kind of what Ransom has called him. He's he's less than human, the way he, he devours and he's seeking to destroy whatever he puts his hands on. And there's one rule in Paralandra, just as much as there was one rule in Eden. But instead of not eating fruit, it's that they cannot spend the night on the fixed land. There's this one island that doesn't float, but it's solid. It reminds us a lot of Earth. And she cannot spend the night on the fixed land. And Ransom thinks this is kind of strange. And the unmanned, the tempter, comes to the lady and says, Aha! You see, the god, Maladil, is trying to keep you from wisdom. And what you must do is you must break this rule to finally become more wise, to finally become just like Maladil. This is what he truly wants. And Ransom comes back with this reply as he's trying to fight so heavily that this world does not end up like our own in fallenness and brokenness. And he says, I think Maladil made one law of that kind in order that there might be obedience. And all these other matters, what you call obeying him is but doing what seems good in your eyes also. Is love content with that? You do them indeed because they are his will, but not only because they are his will, Where can you taste the joy of obeying unless he bids you to do something for which his bidding is the only reason? When we spoke last, you said that if you told the beasts to walk on their heads, they would delight to do so. So I now, I know that you understand well what I'm saying. And the lady responds, we cannot walk out of Maladil's will, but he has given us a way to walk out of our will. A beautiful picture. And there could be no such way except a command like this, out of our own will. And it's a beautiful picture of trusting God's rules, even when it didn't necessarily make sense. There wasn't the logical reason of, okay, that's good for us as human beings, but that's what, this, in this particular instance, it doesn't make any sense. Why can't they spend the night on a fixed land? When it seems so good, it seems so right. Well, ultimately, she wins over the unmanned. She denies him. Paralandra is the, a new world where Satan does not win. The tempter does not defeat the first couple. And at the end of the book, we finally see what this rule was all about. Even though it didn't make sense to them at the time, we see all of these beasts surrounding the first man and the first woman of Paralandra as now the king and the queen of a perfect world. And they're now honoring their great king and ransom. This is what he says. 
In our foolish human fashion, Ransom asked a question merely for the purpose of breaking the tension. How can they climb to here and go down again and yet be off this island before nightfall? For this is another fixed island. Nobody answered him. He did not need an answer, for somehow he knew perfectly well that this island had never been forbidden. And that one purpose and forbidden the other had been to lead them to this, their destined throne. It didn't make sense back then why they couldn't spend the night on that fixed land, but it trained their obedience to God. And eventually it showed that they would not make their home on that fixed land, but on their new place where their throne was, which was a much more beautiful fixed land. I mean, there's great joy that comes with obedience. It doesn't always make the best, I mean, it does, it's not always a logical progression at times where you feel like your desires can so easily rationalize why going against God's rules feels better, looks better, may even satisfy more at that particular moment. But there's great joy that comes with obedience when we trust the one who's made the rules. We may not be able to see its end, but we know the end is good because the one who's given us these rules is good. They're for our protection. They're for our guidance. Rules are a good thing. We employ them in society. But even as we hear this, this word that we're to obey them, our heart breaks, doesn't it? Because we know we can't keep these on our own. We know no matter how much we love them, how much we want to obey them, Jesus reminds us the heart of these rules. And if we were to transport ourselves from Moses' sermon on the plains of Moab to Jesus' sermon on the mount, we see the heart point that's in view here. Yeah, you may not murder, but you get so angry at people that your imagination runs with ploys of revenge. You're guilty too. You may not commit adultery, but you want to. And your mind goes with the obvious ways of lust over and over again as your imaginations play out these scenarios. You too are guilty of breaking God's laws. And it's never been about mere action, as I've said. It's about the heart. And if we're honest with ourselves, it is exactly like the prophet Isaiah says. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And it's precisely because we can't. No matter how hard we try to truly obey these rules, that we cling to the one who obeys them for us. Cling to the one who obeys them for us. The only thing that's more gracious than a God that gives us rules is the one who dies for us when we can't keep them. We have the kind of God, yes, who reveals the perfect life. He demands the perfect life. But when we can't fulfill it, he enters our life and fulfills his demands for us. You see, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, he knew something new had to happen. As God was revealing it to him, this new covenant, a new promise, so that the law would no longer be written in stone, but instead would actually be written on human hearts, such that finally the Lord would be our God, and finally we would be his people. Well, a day came when God no longer just told his people about how to live, but he came to earth as a man and he showed us. And Jesus even says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He lived the life we should have lived, that we can't live. He fulfilled the law and still died the death we deserved to die because we broke his law. And you see the beauty of Isaiah's poem 
is that there's more to that story. All we like sheep, yes, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the gospel truth. His rules are good. We are, we are so called to love them and to seek to obey them, now empowered by the Holy Spirit. But in your failure, cling to the one who obeys the laws for you. God incarnate, the truth, the life, the way of life, flourishing. The one who takes our rebellion upon himself is our substitute, that we might know the Father and what he has designed for us. His name is Jesus Christ, and he's the one that we gather to worship, the one we gather to give our devotion, God incarnate, our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning, and your, word, your rules are magnificent. We think of the chaos that would be without your order. We think of the destruction that would reign supreme if you did not break into our lives, if you did not break into history, and guide us on how to live before you and with you and with one another. We know, Lord, that your rules are perfect, are holy, and are for our flourishing. May we learn to love them. May we learn to obey them with greater fervency as your Holy Spirit works in us. And Lord, may we cling to the one, your Son, Jesus Christ, who obeyed the rules for us in our failure. 